0: James McCudden, 22, Walter Hamilton, 23,
1: Thomas Jean George Lambert, James Thomas Cavanagh, Robert Johnson,
2: Bernard Diamond.
3: It's the highest war honour of the British Prince. Empire and the Commonwealth of Nations. Since 1881, it has been awarded to service personnel for extraordinary valour and devotion to duty while facing hostile force.
4: There are 32 counties in Ireland and every county bar one boasts winners of the Victoria Cross.
5: first soldier to win a VC in the First World War was Morris Deese from County Westmead. The last soldier to win a VC in the First World War was Martin Moffat from Sligo. The first soldier to win a VC in the Second World War was Edward Manick. And the last man to win it was McGuinness, the famous submariner. So I think Ireland should be very proud
1: of their VCs. We've kind of them and they're all first. George Forrest, John Vincent Holland, Thomas Joseph Crane, John
6: Park, John Dugan, James Pearson, John Ryan, Dayton Probyn, Joseph Man. Prosser, Philip Smith.
0: About six months ago, I was wandering around an old graveyard in Lifford, and noticed a headstone which read George Gardner Victoria Cross, I was surprised not only that a recipient of the most revered military medal in the world ended up in the Donegal Cemetery but that he was Irish. So that got me thinking, were there any more Irish men who'd won this medal? And the result of just a little digging brought the extraordinary but forgotten story of over 200 brave souls, all of them Irish, to light. The Victoria Cross is awarded for exceptional valour in the face of the enemy, regardless of class, creed or colour. And the wonderful thing is that the first man ever to receive a Victoria Cross in June 1857 was an Irishman, Charles Lucas.
7: I'm Michael Adams, and Charles Lucas was my great-grandfather and the first man ever to receive a VC. Right, now, this is my study, and more than anything else, it's what I call my temple to great-grandpa. Wow. Because I've got a special wall here, which is a big miser of the bombardment of Bombersund, which is the start of the Crimean War. And underneath is a photograph of great-grandpa in all his finery as a rear-admiral when he was retiring, with his various medals on his chest, obviously, and obviously with a VC, the Royal Humane Society Medal, which he got for jumping into shark-infested waters, I gather, to pull an ordinary seaman out, even when he was quite a senior officer. So he made a habit of being a bit bonkers. Great-grandpa was born at a place called Castle Shane, which I think is in County Monaghan, and he joined the Navy as a midshipman. in his very early teens, and when he was late teens, he joined a ship called the HMS Heckler, and they had to besiege the fort at Bombersund, which was being held by the Russians. At that point, the Russians were firing their reverse cannonades, and a large fizzy bomb landed on the deck of the Heckler. And... Everyone else very sensibly flung themselves flat, except great-grandpa, who then picked up this fizzy bomb and hurled it overboard. And as it was going overboard, it blew up in a million pieces. But the ship and the crew were all saved. I mean, my reaction would have been to give a shriek and run to the back of the boat. But this is why there are not too many VCs, I suppose. Great-grandpa was a man who looked around and saw the problem and saw the risk and was prepared to take the ultimate sacrifice, which is why I think he was such a remarkable man. But he didn't think it was remarkable. He thought it was what you did.
0: But it's not just his great-grandfather's courage that makes Michael smile.
7: I think that it's best explained that someone who could have committed such an extraordinary act of gallantry thought of it as so ordinary that coming back home to Tunbridge Wells from his club in London one evening, and he'd been on duty, so he had to have his medals with him, but he left them on the train. So we lost the medals, they were never found. His ability to leave such an extraordinary glamorous and important item on a train, because he didn't think he was that important, I think sums up the mindset of these remarkable people.
1: Abraham Bolger George Arthur Boyd Rockford
2: William Nash
1: Joseph Bradshaw
2: Timothy O'Hay William Bradshaw Michael O'Leary
1: Broomhead Gonville
2: Claude Raymond, aged 21
0: Luke O'Connor also received a Victoria Cross from Queen Victoria during that first ceremony in 1857. So I'm off to Roscommon to find out about this man. I've arrived in Boyle where I'm meeting local historian Danny Tiernan who's going to take me around the places where Luke O'Connor grew up and we're starting off appropriately enough at the old military barracks.
5: We're in the grounds of King House, house built by the kings who came here with Cromwell and uh, The house was sold to the military in in the uh, 1790s and the military uh, took it over as a barracks. And that's the main gate there in front of us and as we look out onto Main Street, that's where Luke O'Connor would have played as a young lad and uh, he talks in his biography about coming in the gate, running past the century to get in and play and what here is, the square behind us. Boyle was a garrison town, he was living in the garrison town, and most of the young people, their only opportunity, their only way out in life, was actually to join the military if they wanted to do something. Like, mothers marched their sons up to the gates here when they were 16 and handed them over to get the shilling, and they joined the army and they went on to serve well and bravely throughout the world. And what
0: sort of family did Luke come from? Uh,
5: Luke came from a farming background. There was a large family, I believe, and they went to Canada. father died on the boat on the way over. And his mother and brother died when he got there. And he was returned to Boyle to live with an uncle who had a hotel here in town. His uncle sent him to London to be with another uncle who uh, had served in the military as a surgeon. And Luke joined the Fusiliers a couple of months later.
0: So when he joined the army, he would have been a private?
5: He would have joined as a private and he would have learned his skills from other privates in the army. And he tells the story of being left into the billet with an elderly private called Tom Jones, who taught him all his skills and all his rifle marksmanship and everything he needed to know, how to keep his uniform clean, how to polish his buttons, how to blanco his belt, as they did in those days. He was so good and so skilled that the adjutant of the regiment called him out and got him to demonstrate to other soldiers. Thus he became a lance corporal within a year. And went on to become a corporal within a year of that again. So, within two years, he was a full corporal. Within a year of that, again, he was a lance sergeant. And within 12 months, he was a sergeant. Luke was given the job of being colour sergeant at the Alma. The, the lieutenant that was carrying the colours was shot. Luke took charge, picked up the colours, and kept going, even though himself he had been wounded and, and hit in the chest and had two broken ribs. Later on in the afternoon, he was shot in the hip again was severely wounded and had to be sent back to um, what we now call Istanbul, to um, Florence Nightingale in, in So Really? He, yes, he, Florence Nightingale nursed him. After he won the VC or after he was he mentioned in dispatches for the VC, he was made a brevet lieutenant. And while in Scatari Hospital, he was made a lieutenant. So It was very, very unusual, very, very rare for a private, especially a private we'll say from Ireland, to join a Welsh regiment to become his commander-in-chief or to to even get a commission in it and work his way up to commander-in-chief. He was a very, very modest man, a very humble man, because he came from a humble beginning, he came from a humble background. He recognised that particular day that the colours had fallen and he assumed that, and, and rightly so, that he was the nearest man to it, he should pick it up. If he wasn't, he would expect somebody else to have picked it up. That's what they do.
0: So, where are we now?
5: We're in El Finn Church, where Luke O'Connor donated money to have a baptismal font. It's up on the left hand side of the altar, if we we go up and have a look at it. Yes. Well, there you can see a gift of Major General Luke O'Connor, VC. He still had, I suppose, a naking for his own homeland and his own town. And uh, when the church was uh, in need of a baptismal font. He donated £50 pounds to have one purchased and made. They actually bought it for £35. I often wondered if they send them back the £15 pound change. But um, he donated the, the sanctuary lamp as well. I suppose he had pride in his own place. He wanted to be remembered in where he came from, his humble beginnings, and uh, wanted to do something and leave something that people would remember him by. The sanctuary lamp is actually here. Oh, it's very ornate. Isn't it? It's it's, it's very old, it's very big, very cumbersome. And you can see here, written on it here is pray for the donor, Major General Luke O'Connor, V.C. Oh, God, it is heavy. Seamus, grab the other side of it, please. That's it. It's a fine, heavy piece. And look at the design on it. It's a very generous gift. It is a beautiful gift.
0: But he never married. The army was his life, really.
5: He married the army. He married the army. Um, from humble beginnings, he, he rose to the, the top of the tree, and he never forgot the people at the roots. Edward Mannock, Hans Garrett Moore, Robert Morrow, John Moyni, Robert Quig.
1: The list goes on, and here I am alive, when I should be with them. A forgotten body in a Flanders field yet here I am
6: Henry Hartigan Frederick Morris Watson Harvey Robert Hawthorne Samuel
3: Henry.
0: and County Wicklow is the next stop which will bring us up to the First World War which saw the largest number of Victoria Crosses won but sadly also saw the greatest loss of life in any conflict, when basically a generation was lost. And one of these was Clement Robertson from Delgany.
6: Captain Robertson still led his tanks on foot, facing, besides the shells, intense close-range machine gun and rifle fire. He must have known that to go forward on foot meant certain death.
0: And that was part of a report describing the actions of Clement Robertson walking to his certain death in Belgium in October 1917. And I'm with his great-nephew, Ian Robertson, in County Wicklow. What was it like for the soldiers in those first huge, I suppose you might call them, prototype tanks?
3: They were horrendous machines that go three miles an hour, an iron monster with a huge Perkins six-cylinder engine sitting in the middle of it with the exhaust going straight up through the middle, carbon monoxide, awful heat, very little vision, very small, you could hardly see out, and just machine guns on both sides. It was designed to be a mobile machine gun platform, really. But when they were hit by rifle fire or even some of the early anti-tank rifle fire, they'd hit the outside of the tank and a lump of metal would fly off the inside and then ricochet all round the inside so they had to wear masks with metal armour on them inside the tank because lumps of metal would fly around all the time. These had machine guns on either side. It was a brilliant idea because you could sit in the middle of the trench and just fire sideways down. Put the fear of God into the Germans when they first saw them. This huge monster made clouds of smoke, a lot of noise, coming very slowly towards them, and they couldn't stop it. By the time he was commissioned, it was 1916, and they were recruiting for people with an engineering background to man these monstrous tanks that they were developing in England, which they decided to build. It was all very secret, and he was one of the first officers to join the what was called the Heavy Machine Gun Corps, which later became the Tank Corps. His action was in the end of September. There are various accounts of the action in which he won his Victoria Cross, but this particular one, I think, is quite graphic and i think it is the best his section of tanks was due to go into action against ruttle as the condition of the ground was bad he set out accompanied by private allen who had volunteered to assist to tape out a route working all night and with very little sleep during the day this task occupied them from september the 30th to october the 3rd over to the other side of the stream so slowly patiently he walked on his brave assistant accompanied him The German barrage came down furiously. Rifles cracked, machine guns spluttered, and the two lone figures went ever forward. They were well ahead of the infantry now, the only two living creatures to be seen. Bullets whistled by them, flattening with a dull sound against the thick hides of the following tanks. Shell bursts flung showers of mud over them, but they walked on unhurt and undeterred. At last they came to the bridge. Quietly and calmly, Captain Robertson crossed it and guided the tanks over one by one by motions of his hand. The machine guns near at hand chattered savagely, but Captain Robertson might have been on point duty in a county town for all the notice he took. The last tank crawled over. They were not far from their objectives now. Once they hit the road. Last year, we went to Belgium in October 2009 because this um, ex tank regiment a man called Chris Locke had arranged the building of a memorial to the people who fell from the tank corps in the Ypres salient during the First World War and in the run-up to it they found us because they didn't know who Clement's relations existed and they also found Cyril Allen's great nephew as well. So we went to the site of Clement's action and the two of us myself and uh, Cyril Allen's relative, walked down the same piece of road that I've just described in the action. We walked down together, symbolically, and we stood then on the spot where he fell, which was just over the bridge, said a few words, and laid a wreath and some poppy crosses on the side of the road. And having done that, we actually then went to his graveyard. Unlike so many in the First World War who still lie in the ground... He actually has a resting place, and we found his grave there the year before. I brought the actual Victoria Cross with me, and we placed it on his stone and had a service and placed wreaths. And the Last Post Association from Ypres played the Last Post, and Reveille, and their piper played a lament, you know. It was very moving, very moving. And because of all the the build-up to this ceremony, relatives of Cyril Allen, obviously, memories were jogged, and one of them, I think a cousin of his, said, ''We've got a book in the attic and some bits and pieces of Cyril's that we've never really looked at 90 years later.'' And um, it transpired that Cyril Allen had written a letter to my great-grandmother after Clement had died, and he was then killed seven weeks later when the tank corps moved from Belgium down to Cambrai, his body was never found. So it remained with his personal effects. But this letter appeared, and um, it's really very moving because it's so sad that my grandmother never got it. It was never sent, and it was in his effects, and it sat there for 90 years. So it was very exciting. I mean, if you like, I'll read it to you. The first two pages are missing. I don't, we don't know quite why. It's written in pencil in the trenches or, you know, back at camp. Beautiful handwriting and beautiful English, I think. The time was drawing near now for us to prepare for starting and at 6am we commenced and had not gone many yards before we reached the enemy's lines. Here we commenced to go forward, Captain Robertson and myself still leading until we came face to face with the Bosch. The last words he said to me were, Are you all right, Alan, and stick to me? Captain Robertson still went on, while I went behind, to guide our last tank up. Captain Robertson
2: still went on while I went behind, to guide our last tank up, and no sooner had I returned to the front again, to my surprise, I am sorry to say, he was missing. As at this time we were under very heavy machine gun and rifle fire, which being that intense, I had to creep on my hands and knees, and not many yards away, I found Captain Robertson, laying in a small shell hole, wounded, And all I can say is I did my very best for him, as it should be. I held him in my arms until he died. His last moments could have been no pain to him, as he was unconscious to the end. I therefore let the tank successfully career onto their... It was a great pity that he did not live to see the success his work had led this section onto. I am told that at noon on the fourth inst, when the news of his death reached camp, Everybody became miserable, and not even the report of the unique success his section had attained could cheer anyone up. I reached the camp the same evening, absolutely done up, more with sorrow than anything else. We can very well understand how hard it was for you to lose your dear son, and I assure you our deepest regards and sympathies go out to you in your great loss. We would also like you to know that the loss of so great and sporting a leader as Captain Robertson to us is beyond words of description. I have been with him on several such occasions and know his worth. I trust my poor and humble description of your son will be acceptable and I pray that him who guides the welfare of us all will help you to bear your loss. Again, offering the deepest regards and sympathies of myself and my comrades. I am, madam, yours
3: obediently.
2: Gunner C.S. Allen, 3 Company Tank Corps.
3: He puts a rather touching P.S. on the end of it, and he says, P.S., I hope it will not be too much in my asking of you for a gift of a photograph of Captain Robertson for my own keep, C.S. Allen. Terrible, isn't it? That's his Victoria cross. (gasps) That's his actual Victoria cross. These other ones are, um, they're replicas. The Victoria Cross is quite valuable now. And his is in... Uh, Clements is in particularly good condition because it has been handled so little over the 90 years. It's sat in a frame. And I think probably I was the first person to take it out when I went to Belgium the first time. But I suppose it's because the legend
0: of the Victoria Cross, you expect something bigger. But it is small, it is discreet, it's a dark brown on a maroon ribbon.
3: A maroon ribbon, yes. Queen Victoria wanted it to be of no real value as such... And it's not shiny, and it's not um, pretentious in any way. It's just the Victoria Cross.
1: Dennis Dynan. John English. John Farrell. Richard Fitzgerald. James Byrne. Hugh Henry Gough. John Byrne. Edward Holland. Thomas Byrne. William House. John Caffrey. Martin Doyle. Patrick the
0: names of many World War I battles are well known for their terrible attrition rate. Passchendaele, Ypres, Gallipoli, and of course the Battle of the Somme, which is commemorated at the Somme Heritage Centre in Northern Ireland, where there's even a mock-up of the trenches. And it was in that pretty eerie place that Neil Wilson told me about the four VCs won by four Irishmen during the first two days of that battle, the 1st and 2nd of July, 1916. And here's a couple of those stories of extraordinary courage.
8: Out of the four winners, three Victoria Crosses were given out posthumously, and the first VC to be given out posthumously was given to Private William Frederick McFadgen of the 14th Battalion of the Royal Irish Rifles. He was a Mills bomber, and his job was to bring up hand grenades into the front line. He had made his first trip up successfully, distributed the grenades amongst the battalions waiting to go over on the first wave, On his second trip up, he heard the igniter caps of the Mills bombs pop, which means the pins have come out of these bombs and the bombs are therefore live. So he had four seconds to make his decision as to what he was gonna do. He was in a packed trench filled with hundreds of men. So what he did was threw himself on top of the boxer grenades, hugged them tight to his chest. They exploded beneath him. He was killed instantly, but he did save the lives of every man in that trench. So the final VC to be awarded went to Rifleman Robert Quigg of the 12th Royal Irish Rifles. He was the only survivor that was awarded a VC on the 2nd of July. Robert was informed that his commanding officer, Lieutenant McNaughton, was lying severely wounded somewhere in a shell hole in no man's land. Now before the war, Robert Quigg had worked for the McNaughton family on their family estate, and he felt great personal loyalty towards Lieutenant McNaughton because of the pre-war connection and as his batman that he was serving in that capacity at the time. Now, Robert made his way out into no-man's land. The area was still being heavily shelled by the enemy. He actually went out into no-man's land that day seven times. So after several hours, he retired to the trench absolutely physically exhausted. Sadly, he was unable to find Lieutenant McNaughton's body, so Robert Quigg was later on presented with his VC by King George V, and there's a great story that accompanies that. When he was being awarded the Victoria Cross and the King was pinned it to his chest, the King remarked, "'You're a very brave man, Private Quigg,' to which Robert Quigg swiftly replied, sure, you're a brave wee man yourself, King.'"
0: The book, Irish Winners of the Victoria Cross, details every single known Irish recipient and was compiled and written by Richard Doherty and David Truesdale in 2000. But even the historians, who you'd imagine to have a purely academic interest, are passionate about the stories of these remarkable men.
6: For me, the most compelling story of the Victoria Cross is that of Lieutenant Commander Eugene Esmond uh, from County Tipperary, who was killed leading his swordfish squadron ...against the uh, German ships the the Scharnhorst, the Nijna, and the Prince Eugen and the Channel Dash on the 12th of February 1942. Esmond was a, a very, very interesting character. He was born in 1909 in Yorkshire where his father happened to be working as a doctor. Came back to live in Tipperary later that year. He had a great uncle who had the Victoria Cross from the Crimean War became the first Catholic to be Deputy Inspector General of the Royal Irish Constabulary. He had another ancestor a little bit further back who was hanged for his part in the 1798 Rebellion. And his father was a member of John Redmond's Irish Party at Westminster. Really one of those people who had a very, very deep sense of duty. He also had a very strong religious faith. He had gone off to train to be a priest, decided that the priesthood wasn't for him, became a pilot instead, and had actually left the service and came back in in 1939 when the war started as an officer of the fleet air arm and was leading these swordfish against these huge German ships. And on the day that uh, he took the six swordfish off in broad daylight to tackle these German ships, One Royal Air Force officer who actually waved him off said that he saw death already on Esmond's face and he reckoned that Esmond already knew that he wasn't coming back alive. So he literally, the very last act of his life was to release the torpedo and the aircraft then crashed into the channel and Prince Eugen swerved to avoid being hit by the torpedo. And literally within weeks The London Gazette carried the announcement of the award of the Victoria Cross to him as a posthumous award. The recommendation originally made by the Royal Air Force officer, first time an RAF officer had ever written a recommendation for a VC for a Royal Navy officer. A very, very fitting gesture was that King George VI decided that the most appropriate day in which to invest the Esmond family with their son and brothers, Victoria Cross, was St. Patrick's Day. And so on the 17th of March 1942, his his invalid mother was brought from Germina in County Tipperary to Belfast, flown across to England, and the King presented them with the little bronze cross that is regarded across the world as one of the finest tokens of gallantry, one of the most uh, outstanding tokens of gallantry that there is.
4: The Victoria Cross is Britain's highest award for gallantry. In Germany, it's the Iron Cross. And the only British soldier to have been awarded both was Assistant Surgeon William George Nicholas Manley, who came from Dublin. His Victoria Cross was awarded for his actions during the Maori War in New Zealand in 1864. Uh, Normally, surgeons look after the wounded when they're brought in, but in this case, Manley had actually gone out onto the battlefield to bring injured men Back to the field hospital. The Iron Cross uh, was awarded during the Franco Prussian War of 1870 1871 when Manley was serving with the British Ambulance Corps and treated wounded from both sides. As a result of this, the Germans awarded him the Prussian Iron Cross Second Class along with the Bavarian Order of Merit and the Geneva Cross. Manley was also the holder of the Knight of the Order of St. John of Jerusalem.
1: Alexander Dunn, James Emerson,
4: George Rupel,
1: Thomas Esmond,
2: Richard Keating,
1: Charles Fitzclarence,
2: Charles Goff, Francis Fitzpatrick, David Nelson, Alexander Young.
0: Leading seaman James McGinnis from Belfast was the last Irishman to win a VC, and that was for his action in the Johor Straits in 1945. But when he came home, he was shunned by both sides of the community there. However, that didn't happen only in Northern Ireland. James Duffy from Donegal was awarded the Victoria Cross for his actions in Palestine in 1917. But when he came home, he was ostracised by just about everyone. He was spat on, vilified, kidnapped for three days, yes, kidnapped, and his children had a particularly difficult time at school, as it was made clear to them that their father had betrayed Ireland. So life was really hard for the Duffy family post-war, his daughter, Nellie O'Donnell, has remained in Donegal, but she is still very angry about the effect her father's military career had on her life.
9: It was awful. <laughs> just it was like awful.
0: And in what way was it awful?
9: Just uh, nobody wanted to speak to you, or nobody, you know. Just kind of shunned you like
0: you know, all the time.
9: Just there was something against the British Army. And the fact that he'd won a Victoria Cross, that didn't help oh, at all. Oh, it didn't matter. Oh, not at all. Was he a difficult man? At times, you know, he was. Difficult enough I, uh, after drinking one thing, you know, he was just difficult. Do you think it was the effect of what he saw and oh, did in yes, the war? Oh, yes, Of course, every bit of it. Yes, it did certainly. He didn't want to talk about it. He did not want to talk about it. You know. You know, these moods and everything. You couldn't understand what he went through or anything. Like.
0: And then I believe there was an incident in which he was taken away.
9: Yes, he was. Yeah, we don't know much about it. He was three days away. <laughs> Mother was nearly off her head about it. Or he didn't see when he came back where he was. No, nobody asked him anything. It was um, taboo. Whatever sort of punishment it was or whatever. Hard to believe, but that did go on there. It did.
0: Do you know what he did? Have you any idea what his, no, what know. he did in Palestine?
9: His mate was killed, and uh, he went and got another stretcher, and he went and took the stretcher himself. He just kept going back. Yeah, going back and done to himself like I uh, carried the wounded to safety.
0: So he won the Victoria Cross, and he came home to be shunned and despised. Oh yes, yeah, very much. Yep.
9: Oh, shunned was the word for it. Yeah.
0: So now things are getting a bit better. Do you think?
9: Yes, of course they are. Much better, yeah.
0: It's a bit late,
9: though, for your dad. Too late, yeah. And for the rest of the family, too late.
0: But why was there such a feeling of antipathy towards Duffy and men like him in Donegal, given that returning soldiers in other parts of Ireland were given a hero's welcome? Former Fine Gael TD Paddy Hart, who lives in Raffo and Donegal, explained the reasons behind such bitterness and also why he has spent the last dozen or so years trying to redress that balance. The
10: 1916 Rising, wrong-footed, lots of Irish young Irish men who were wearing khaki uniforms and fighting for the freedom of small nations and, and as they believed, for, for um, home rule. Maybe wrong to blame the rising, more to blame the execution of the leaders. But I want to emphasise here, it wasn't the British government. It was the British generals who did the the shooting of the leaders of 1916. They turned the entire country against them. And that would have almost uh, explained the change in attitude of the, the aftermath of the First World War. And that's the kind of Ireland that the soldiers came home to. Families been ashamed to talk about losing a brother or a son or a husband or a father. And that was all wrong. In 1996, my wife, Rosalind, uh, were watching, I think, something on television about the First World War. And she said, well, maybe before you leave politics, we should go to the war graves. And I thought it was a good idea. So for three or four days, in September '96, I had a crash course on my uh, visit to the First World War. And I had a conscience about looking at names that I realised are very Irish and very Catholic. And now I was the longest-serving member in the Dáil. And in those then 35 years, I had never heard this being spoken of. And and I wasn't very proud of that. So after the third day, David Stacey, who was my guide from the Commonwealth War Wargraves, said, to Mr Hart, you'll be back? And I said, yes, David, I'll be back. So I spoke with a friend and, and we talked about getting uh, 50 people at random as long as we came from north, west, east and south, uh, and they did. And so on a Sunday evening on the 9th of November... 1996. Poppies were being worn by a number of people at Dublin Airport. Some looking and wondering what the hell are they doing here, and the others very proud of, to wear it. So I found myself wearing a, a poppy simply because I thought it was the right thing to do. But before the evening was out, there were people asking me for, for poppies.
0: So, do you think there might have been a will, but maybe not the courage, for some time for people to maybe acknowledge the fact? that there were Irishmen who did fight on the side of the British.
10: We've come a long way. When I first talked about the First World War, my good friends were saying, stay away from that. There's no votes in this. I would like to think that the decision I took to remember the dead of the First World War was more important to me than a doll seat. I feel proud to say that. I knew that somebody has to stand up and say this is wrong. And I'm grateful that God gave me the courage to do it.
0: And things have moved on. Last year, a headstone was unveiled during Remembrance Week in Dublin's Glasnevin Cemetery to a homeless Dubliner called Martin Carr, who died in 1916 fighting in the British Army. Up until then, his grave was simply and quite sadly known as UG, Unknown Grave, 481-2. stroke It's hard to believe that 50,000 Irish men and women died in World War I wearing British military uniforms. However, one of the most surprising things that struck me while making this programme is the depth of emotion still felt by the families and friends of those who died, even after so many years, and their pride never wavers. So let's leave the last words to them.
7: I feel hugely flattered. And enormously proud to be descended from a man of that standing because there's any one of him and to be connected with him and his very gallant band of VCs and George crosses is a huge privilege
3: our family are very very proud of him but it is amazing that uh, most brave men when you talk about them they don't feel that they've done anything specifically courageous and that um, you know if he was looking down on us today doing this interview he'd be wondering what on earth all the fuss was about
10: yeah.
1: John Dugan, John Ryan, James Owen, Peter Hughes, William
0: Kenny, twenty,
1: Thomas Flynn,
0: William Lendrum, aged fifteen, John Lyons
5: Charles. I was just twenty years of age.
6: Frederick Roberts, James McGuire, James McCutton Walter.
1: But I was only nineteen. A little cross of bronze. The cross he won but
0: never wore My son
2: George White James Henry Reynolds Richard Ridgway Patrick Carlin Robert Rogers
1: Adrian Carton-Dewart John Sinton William Coffey Thomas Duffy William Darling, Owen Lloyd Hugh Colvin John Lucas Cornelius Coughlin Valentine McMaster John Connolly Ignatius Masterson Dennis Dempsey Frederick Maud John Doohan John Duane